trip that he took deep into the heart of the Himalayan mountains of Tibet. And the goal of that mission trip was to reach the remote people of the Zangala Valley with some medical assistance and, of course, with the gospel. And while ministering there, one of the village mothers went into labor, gave birth, and one of the babies died. Clayton King describes the scene in his book. Here's what he said. When we entered the room where the pregnant woman was, we saw her laying in a pool of her own blood on blankets and sacks. We were informed that the mother had already been in labor for 24 hours. In the delivery of twins, her first baby was breached, and the lives of both mother and child hung in the balance. The conditions were filthy, and the whole family was gathered in the room burning incense and chanting prayers and mantras in hopes their gods would be gracious to the pregnant mother. In the moment of life and death as they hang in the balance, Clayton King said that he was prompted by the Holy Spirit to declare a bold and risky message. In fact, here's what he said. I turned to those in the room and said, We have come from the other side of the world to your village. We have prayed to our God that He would bring us here and He has answered our prayers. We will pray to our God that He will save the lives of the mother and her twins. I'm here today to tell you that our God's name is Jesus and He loves you very much. And that is why He sent us here from America to treat your sickness and to save these three lives. If one of the babies dies, then our God is not real. If the mother dies, then our God is not real. But if they all three live, then Jesus has proven Himself to your people that He truly is God and He will save you. What a prayer. How many of you would have the audacious faith to make a statement like that? (laughs) Now I promise we're going to find out what happens later on in the message But what a reminder that we are often called to minister the hope of the gospel in the shadow of death. And friend, if the gospel doesn't meet the deepest need of man in the hour of death, then what good is it? Max Licato wrote in a sobering way, he said, quote, Death is the bully on the block of life. He dogs our steps robs us of loved ones, and with each passing year taunts, saying, Your day is coming. Someday you will be mine. (laughs) We all have a terminal disease, don't we? It's called mortality. (laughs) The current death rate is quite staggering. Ten out of ten die. We don't like to think about it, but they tell us that three people die every second, 180 every minute, 11,000 every hour, 250,000 every day slipping into eternity, heaven or hell. Eternity is starting. And so it is fitting that Jesus' last and most amazing miracle here in the Gospel of John confronts man's worst enemy and philosophy's greatest mystery. And that is death. If Jesus could not offer us any hope when it comes to death, then it would have mattered very little that he could turn the water into wine or multiply the fishes and the loaves. And in John chapter 11, we come to 
Jesus' seventh sign miracle. It happens there beside the grave of Lazarus. Now you'll remember that as we've studied through the Gospel of John, each sign miracle addresses a different need that we face in our earthly journey. For example, in the first miracle as Jesus turned water into wine, that shows us how Jesus deals with our disappointments. At some point in your life, there's going to be a shortage of something. Then there's the healing of the nobleman's son. That is how Christ confronts man's doubt. Then he moves on and he restores strength to the legs of the paralytic. That shows that Jesus is sovereign over our disabilities. By feeding the 5,000, we see how Jesus meets man's desires. He is the bread of life. He feels the deepest hunger pains that we have. When Jesus walked upon the stormy sea, we see that He is there in man's danger. Thank God our lifeguard can walk on water. Amen. Amen. And as He restores sight to the man born blind, we see that Christ is light to man's darkness. He is the light of the world. And now we come to John 11. At a Bethany cemetery, we see that Jesus gives an answer to man's problem of death. And in this incredible story of resurrection, we're going to see that Jesus shows His Lordship in three different areas. If you're taking notes, you may want to jot this down. Number one, we see that Jesus is Lord over life's delays. He is Lord over life's delays. Verse 1, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany. In the village of Mary and her sister Martha... And it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. And so the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus and Lazarus. And so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. Without a doubt, friend, uh, one of the most difficult aspects of trying to understand God's ways is we have trouble wrapping our mind around God's timing. And I believe this is a perfect example because the text says very clearly that Jesus loved Mary and He loved Martha and Lazarus and yet His actions seem to contradict that because when He hears news that Lazarus is ill, He doesn't pack up and run post-haste to meet Him by the bedside. The Bible says that instead Jesus allowed the situation to languish and get worse by delaying the Lord over life's delays. Why does Jesus seem to drag his feet? Well, I think the key is found in verse 4. Let's read it again. Jesus said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Friend, which would be a greater miracle? Healing a sick person or raising a corpse back to life that had been dead in the ground for four days and rigor mortis was already starting to set in. 
Jesus was not in a rush because a delay was baked into the design of this tremendous miracle. Friend, I'm here today to tell you that He is Lord over life's delays. You see, Jesus knew all along that the goal of this was not the restoration of health, but it was the resurrection unto life. And the only way, friend, I'm not as uh, the smart one, the only way that you get a resurrection is you have to have a dead body first. And oftentimes, we doubt God's love, we doubt God's power, we doubt God's plan, because we look at how He's operating in our lives, and we don't have His timetable, and when we look at the way things are playing out in life, we say, Lord, where are you? Lord, why are you dragging your feet? Lord, I've prayed and prayed and and I've done all the right things. I've called upon your name and Lord, it seems like the heavens have turned to brass and you've tarried. Oswald Chambers, the great devotional writer, said this. He said, quote, Sometimes it seems like God is missing the mark because we are too short-sighted to see what He is aiming for. We judge events by time, but God judges events by eternity. And later on, when Lazarus is raised from the dead, he will become a walking billboard for the gospel and the power of Jesus Christ. It would only be through the benefit of hindsight that the disciples would be able to look back with clarity and see Jesus' timing and what he was doing. And the same is true for you and me, friend. Faith is trusting in advance what will only make sense in reverse. He's the Lord over life's delays. I know this because I've lived it. Last year I was planning out our church's homecoming service. And I called a singing group who was going to be with us that day. It was actually a Mayus Road. And I confirmed the date with them. I said, y'all going to be here for June 6th. We're looking forward to y'all coming. It's going to be a great day in the Lord. We were about a month out from the date. They called me back. And they said, Derek, we've got a speed bump that's happened in our schedule. And uh, we can't make it on June the 6th. I said, what about the next Sunday, June the 12th? No, we can't make it on June the 12th. But we can squeeze you in on June the 20th. And I said, well, that wasn't the original plan, but it's all that I've got. So let's go with that, June the 20th. So we scheduled the day. And boy, did the Lord show up. It was an awesome time in the Lord. I think I ended up absolutely wrecked on the altar. <laughs> the Holy Spirit fell in power. Flood, uh, folks were flooding the altar. And that day we had a man profess Christ. And at the end of the service, I, I kind of made the offhanded comment to the church. I said, you know, church, we originally had this plan for June the 6th. I said, but now we know why the Lord moved it to June the 20th because there was a divine appointment for this man to make a decision for Jesus Christ. Well, after the service, that, that same man who made that profession, he came up to me. He had tears streaming down his face. He said, let me tell you the other side of the story that you don't know, preacher. He said, on June 6th, he said, I remember that day. He said, because uh, that was the last day that I got high on drugs. He said, so if you would have had the homecoming on that day, I wouldn't have been able to be here. 
He said, so now I look at it and I can see everything coming together that God moved all of these pieces and details around so that I could be here and so that the singing group could be here so that I could hear the gospel and respond. And I'm telling you, He's the Lord over life's delays. We look at our situation and it seems chaotic. It seems that God's not in it. Oh, but friend, He's making a way (laughs) when I can't see that a way out when it's too complex for me, when it seems like God is dragging His feet, friend, oh, there's design in the delay. He's an on-time God every time. He's not in a hurry. Why? Because He can't be late. That's the kind of Christ that I serve. What we think are God's accidents are actually God's appointments. Hey, there's purpose in His postponement and there is design in His delay Somebody help me preach this in the house of God today. It takes faith to trust that while we're waiting, He's working in a way that I can't understand. It's beyond my comprehension. And it involves many different pieces that God's going to bring together in a powerful show of who He is. He's the Lord over life's delays. Now you say... Well, Derek, I'm in one of those waiting patterns. You're like Martha and Mary. This word's been sent out. You're waiting on God. You're waiting for the Lord to do something. Listen, friend, waiting doesn't mean idleness. In fact, I made this acrostic using that word wait. W-A-I-T. What do we do while we're waiting on God? Well, W, we can work. We serve God in the meantime. A, we act, we need to be obedient to what God has told us to do while we're waiting. We need to, I, invite, that is, allow God to move in our heart, building faith and spiritual trust. It's hard to wait on God, but yet we need to invite Him to work in our heart and teach us the lesson that we need to learn in that waiting period. And then T, we need to trust. We need to trust that God's timing is better than the timetable we have laid out for ourselves. So we see number one, The Lord over life's delays. I don't know if y'all believe it this morning. Do you believe it? Well, amen. Let's see number two then. The Lord over life's disappointments. The Lord over life's disappointments. Let's drop down to verse 17 just in the interest of time. And the Bible says that when Jesus came, He found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. And Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. And so when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. And Martha said to Jesus, oh, here it is, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. (laughs) By the time Jesus makes it to Bethany, The Bible says that Lazarus has already been moldering in the ground for four days. Obviously, Martha is broken hearted. Now, why is the four days significant? Well, according to rabbinic tradition of that time, they believe that after death, the soul lingered around the body, but on the fourth day, the soul left for its eternal destination permanently. Now, There's no biblical basis for that superstition, but that was the tradition, that was the belief in Jesus' culture during this time. 
And yet, this knowledge, this cultural superstition, only deepened the hopelessness of Mary's situation. I mean, this, it's over, Jesus. You missed your appointment, Jesus. And if you read between the lines of dialogue between Martha and Christ here, it's obvious that not only is she disappointed, Jesus didn't meet her expectations. Jesus, I expected you to be here. Jesus, if you would have been here, she's kind of passive-aggressive in blaming Jesus. Hey, you know, Jesus, the whole situation could have been different had you have showed up, right? She's brokenhearted. Hurting people, that's what they do. They lash out. They look for somebody to blame. Oftentimes when we're disappointed in life, who's the first one to get a black eye? We blame a lot on God that God isn't responsible for. And yet, doesn't each of us struggle this same way when calamity, when death, when unexpected evil strikes? Oh, we praise God in the good times. We praise Him on Sunday morning when the music's good and the preaching's halfway decent. The moment something goes wrong in life, who do we throw under the bus? Hey, I've done it and you've done it. And that's why this story is so real. Because we feel our pain. We feel our disappointment. Lord, I, I thought you were going to act this way and, and you didn't. And my bubbles burst. God, why didn't you prevent this bad from happening? Am I preaching to anybody today? You see, we, we come to this conclusion when we're disappointed, when our faith is jilted. We come to this conclusion, well, God's either good or God's either great, but He's not good and great. In other words, He's a good God, He's a loving God, but He's not ultimately sovereign because if He was in control, He could have prevented that. Or, or God, He may be in control and He may be sovereign, but He can't be good at the same time because if He truly did love me, this is the thing that Satan whispers in your ear, if He truly did love you, hey, He would have prevented that bad thing from coming into your life. That ever happened to you? Hey, Satan, ever sneak up to you and begin to whisper to you in the darkness of the night, in the depths of your disappointment? You know, you really can't trust that, God. All that stuff that preacher was talking about, that Sunday morning stuff, I've been there before. And if you've been disappointed, you've come to that fork in the road. Mark Batterson has a great insight here. I want to read it to you. He says, quote, If Jesus had simply healed Lazarus, I'm sure people would have praised God. I'm also sure some skeptics would have claimed he wasn't that sick to begin with or credited his recovery to good medicine. <laughs> that sound about right? If Jesus, he said, would have simply healed Lazarus, it would have merely reinforced the faith they already had. But Jesus wanted to stretch their faith, and in order to do that, sometimes things have to go from bad to worse before they get better. Somebody say amen. He said that's true in our lives as well. God wants us to learn that sometimes... Things have to die so that He can resurrect them back to life and our faith is then taken to a new level. Amen. Friend, have you stood by the grave of disappointment 
And maybe somebody you love died or you had to watch a dream die or a marriage die or something that God gave you that was precious to you. You had to watch it die. And you say, God, I don't see your hand in all this. Lord, I don't understand what you're doing in all of this. It's really hard, God, to trust you right now. I thought you were, God, going to act this way. But in order for God to stretch our faith, sometimes He has to let something die so He can raise it up and take our faith to a new level. I don't even pretend to know why God allows some of the things to happen in this world. I don't know why God allows shooters into schools. I don't know why God allows babies to die. I don't understand why it seems like some of the most precious, godly, humble people suffer the way that they do. And it seems so undeserving, the things that they are asked to carry. I don't understand a lot of it, but I do know this. Faith says this, even when I can't trace his hand, I can trust his heart. He's still a good God. And I don't understand it all, but I have to rest in this knowledge. He loved Mary and Martha. And those whom He loves, He will withhold no good thing from them. And He will show them beautiful, mighty, and profound things about them that will change who they are and their view of Him. That's what Jesus is doing here. In her deep grief, Martha does have a glimmer of faith. Look at what she said in verse 22. I love this. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Isn't that beautiful? That little glimmer of hope. But even now, Jesus, I know it's hopeless. I know the, the stone is in front of the grave. I know the situation is impossible but she knew a thing or two about Jesus. Amen. That but, it's the connective tissue between a statement of fact and a statement of faith. Martha trusts Jesus' heart and she's not willing to give up even after the funeral. That's faith. My goodness. She's not willing to give up <laughs> on God. Friend, maybe you need to be reminded of that today. Oh, your heart's been disappointed many times through church or, or, or through faith or your understanding of who you thought God was. Just trust Him. Just lean into Him just like Martha did. Lord, I don't understand it, but I'm leaning into who I know you really are. And I don't know how you're going to work all this out. But friend, faith inserts a comma even at the end of a death sentence. Amen? There's no period at the end of that. There's a comma. But God. Right? Now, while Martha believed that Jesus could resurrect her brother in the distant future, she did not think that He could do it or would do it in the present. Look at what she says, verse 23. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that He will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. 
She's pulling that knowledge out of Sunday school or something that she'd heard in the synagogue. Yeah, Jesus, I know about the general resurrection at the end of time. That's a long way away. But that doesn't help me in my present pain, Jesus. You know, when you're suffering and your heart's hurting, knowing a lot of theology doesn't really seem to ease the ache, does it? That's why your faith needs to be real. And you need to know who the heart of your God is. Because sometimes the, the things you learn in the theology books, they just, they just won't ease the pain. But how many of you know it's, it's not about a long list of doctrines? It's about a person. And when you know the heart of the person that you're following, and that he's good, and that he's God... You won't have all those theological knots untangled, but you'll know, hey, I can follow Him even to the very end and He'll be faithful. You see, we have the same faith struggle that Martha does, only in reverse. We look back at the mighty miracles of God in the New Testament and in the Old, and we think, oh, well, that was God then. He, can't, he was that way back then, but He can't do it now. She's got it the other way. Oh, I know there's a resurrection. It's way off in the future. But what about right now? Isn't that where we live in the right now? God, I've read all the stories about who you are and how you've acted in the past. But my heart hurts tonight. You see, what this, this whole miracle is about is Jesus wants them to understand that He's the great I Am. Amen. Notice what He says in the next... Verse, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Jesus pulls on this loose thread that's dangling by Martha's threadbare faith. And he gives her this final of the seven I am statements featured in this book. I am the resurrection and the light. And notice this. Jesus moved the resurrection from some abstract principle way off in the eons of future time. And he moved it into the present and said, Martha, don't you know, I'm the one in whom all power resides. This isn't about what God is going to do. It's about what I am going to do right now. And He's stretching the faith of everybody. And He's saying to her, Look, I'm not the I was whose power is gone in the past. Nor am I the I will be of tomorrow whose power is not yet. But I am the I am. And my power is sufficient for the pain that you're dealing with right now. Amen. I love the story that came across my attention from two missionaries, Bob and Brenda Bagley, a precious couple. I read about their story in a book. Listen to this. The Bagleys were stationed in Africa. And early on in their ministry, they did not have a church building. So the church they started among the poor villagers met under the shade of a huge sycamore tree. Now stop right there. How many 21st century Americans would go to church under a tree? Or how many of us are too good for that? 
Well, over in Africa, they just wanted to hear the words of life. All was going well in the church under the tree until a local witch doctor who opposed the work of the Bagleys declared a curse on the tree and the tree withered and died. Sounds like something out of the Old Testament, doesn't it? God still operates this way in some of the far reaches where they're not as civilized, quote unquote, as we are. Bob Bagley said he had never run into a problem like this before and he felt like he was way out of his league. I mean, how do you go up against a witch doctor who curses your tree, your church, and it dies? Not only was he said, I disappointed in God. I said, God, how could you let this happen to my ministry? After all, my wife and I had given up everything to come to this God-forsaken country. He was disappointed. You ever been there? On top of that, God, the people have lost faith in their pastor. He said, not only did I, the church lose their shade, but they were overshadowed by the curse. The death of the tree seemed to undermine the power of the gospel I was preaching. Wow. Dr. Bagley knew that his little church needed a miracle. Sometimes, that's what you really need, isn't it? God gets you in a corner and He's got you there and He's going to get you out, but you're waiting on the miracle. So not knowing what else to do, he called an emergency prayer meeting at the tree. Now think about how ridiculous this looks. Bagley did what you and I may sound crazy to us, but he laid hands on the tree and he asked God to resurrect it back to life. You talk about a tree hugger. (laughs) He even said in the boldness of his prayer, Lord, your name is at stake here if this tree doesn't live again. You know, sometimes in order to be victorious, you have to be willing to look ridiculous and trust God in a desperate way. Bob and the church waited for several weeks. He said, and it seemed as if God had not heard. God, why are you delaying? Then one day, somebody from the church walked by and noticed something. They ran and they got Pastor Bob. Bob, there's there's green leaves on the tree. In time, he said, the tree flourished as it turned lush again. Not only did the tree come alive again, but the witch doctor who cursed the tree gave it up and came to Jesus Christ. (laughs) That's the power of our God. And he said that that miracle of resurrection sparked a revival there in the country of Africa where he was at. But notice this. God allowed something precious to die only to raise it back up again so that people would be drawn to Jesus Christ and so that by meeting Jesus Christ they could be raised from death to life. And he did it with Lazarus and he'll do it with us. He can take a tragedy and turn it into a triumph For the name of Jesus and the glory of the gospel. So we see number one. He's the Lord over life's delays. Number two. He's the Lord over life's disappointments. And then I want you to see number three. He's the Lord over life and death. 
He's the Lord over life and death. We'll start up again in verse 32. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw Him, she fell at His feet saying, Lord, if You'd been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, He was deeply moved in His spirit and greatly troubled. And He said, Where have you laid Him? And they said to Him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. And so the Jews said, See how He loved Him. Some of them said, Could not He who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? You see, friend, before there was a triumph in the graveyard, there were tears. And in verse 35, the shortest verse in the New Testament, has some of the deepest meaning of all. Jesus wept. We forget about that, don't we? That He's 100% God, but He's 100% man. Touched by every infirmity, every weakness of the flesh, yet without sin. He knows heartache. He knows sickness. He knows grief. He knows tears. This is a sympathizing Savior who could get down in the gutter with you and help you in your time of need. Not just some distant, far away God. Not just some God on a shelf that you pull down when you need Him. But a real God who's involved in the details and the pain of your life. That's a Savior for me. That's a God that I need on Monday morning. A God at the graveside. A God at the sickbed. A God when the situation is hopeless. Whom can I turn to but the Lord? The doctors don't have the answer. My government can't fix the problem. My bank account won't help me. Oh, but I know a God in heaven who will get down into low depths with me and help me in my time of need. Oh, thank God for the tears of Jesus. You ever stop to think about why Jesus cried here? I mean, he knew what he was about to do, right? He knows he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. Why is he crying? I love the way Bible commentator Warren Wiersbe gives some light on this. Listen to what he said. He said, quote, We see in Jesus' tears the tragedy of sin, but also his sympathy for humanity. Perhaps Jesus was weeping for Lazarus and with the sisters because he knew he was calling his friend from heaven and back to a wicked world where he would have to die again. Jesus had come down from the glory of heaven so he knew what Lazarus was leaving behind. Oh my. No wonder he wept. Jesus called Lazarus by name. Look what verse 37 says. Verse 38, And Jesus was deeply moved again and came to the tomb, and it was a cave and a stone laid against it. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor. The old good King James says, Lord, he stinketh. He's been dead for four days. Hard to improve on that. Verse 40, and Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you have sent me. And when he had said these things, cried out a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. 
And the old preachers used to say that if Lazarus wasn't called out specifically by name, that the whole graveside would have opened up and the people would have come out. Because that's the power of our Lord Jesus. Thank God Jesus is Lord over life and death. And because of that, that means that He can meet us in life's cemeteries. Verse 44, the man who had died came out and his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said, unbind him and let him go. Can you get your mind in that picture? Old Lazarus comes stumbling, bumbling, rumbling out of that grave. He's got the clothes off uh, uh, wrapped around him and around his legs and feet. Oh, what a sight that would have been. If you're there by the graveside, there to say goodbye to a loved one. Or maybe it's your time to cross over. I'm thankful that we have a God who attends to the funeral. And we can say, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. By the way, <laughs> an encore is to be scheduled Lazarus is just a warm-up. Jesus one day is going to shout and all of God's church by name, all of those saints from the time of Acts chapter 2 until the present, all those saints will come out of the grave. Graveyards, ocean depths, battlefields, burned buildings and every other resting place of the faithful will give up the dead and those bodies will be reunited with a soul because He'll stand on the banister of heaven and say, Clifford, come forth. Stan, come forth. Derek, come forth. Oh, praise God for a resurrection life in the Lord Jesus. In the moment, in a twinkling of an eye, the shout, the cry will be given. Oh, it will all be reconstituted, resurrected, and reunited in the presence of Christ. I remember going up as a kid to Mount Pisgah Baptist Church. And oftentimes it would get unhinged up at Mount Pisgah Baptist Church. Bobby Weinbarger up there preaching up a storm, red-faced, sweating, people running the aisles and shouting. There was one lady who could literally curl the paint on the room when she got full of the Holy Ghost and she let out a blood-curdling scream. And I can remember Bobby Weinbarger. There's a graveside right outside. I can remember him preaching one Sunday morning. He said, I guess he was planning on being buried over there. He said, I can't wait for the day when the cry of command is given. And he said, all these saints of God that I've spent time tolling with and buried and put in the ground, one day that hillside's going to explode. And all of God's people will be called home to be with Him. Oh, praise God. Glory to His name. This, you see, friend, this is a picture of the future rapture of the church here. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, let me remind you what it says. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and with the voice of an archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ shall rise. Death doesn't get the final word, friend. Put a comma there. Put an ellipsis. It's a to be continued. It's not over till God says it's over. And friend, uh, just in case you're wondering, oh, he's still the grave robber today. Uh, not only did he give Mary and Martha their brother back, 
but he gave Lazarus two lives to live for him. Imagine Lazarus after this. We don't know how long Lazarus lived after this resurrection, but I can guarantee you this. What would you do to frighten him? He certainly wasn't going to be afraid of death. And when Lazarus went around town and he was preaching the gospel and telling his life story and the Pharisees got their feathers all ruffled and said, Lazarus, you better be quiet. We're going to kill you. We're going to persecute you. He could stand up and laugh in their face. <laughs> Death, is that all you've got? I've been there. I got the t-shirt and I know the one who's going to let me out on the other side. Somebody help me. Praise him in God's house today. You're going to kill me for preaching Christ? <laughs> you ain't got nothing on me. And friend, that's what I have to do with the devil sometimes. Oh, devil, you just get behind me. You don't have anything on me. I'm wrapped up in Jesus Christ. I'm indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. I'm signed, sealed, and delivered. You can kill me, but that ain't the end of the story. I'm going to live on, devil, while you're rotting in that lake of fire forever. I'm going to live longer than the stars, praising my Jesus, giving Him glory, throwing crowns at His feet. I don't know if you're as excited as I am today, but somebody help me. You can have a second life too. You see old Lazarus, he come out of that tomb covered in those grave clothes. Friend, I don't know what the devil's got you wrapped up in. Addiction, depression, brokenness, fear, condemnation. Satan's got you wrapped up in the grave clothes. The Bible says that you are dead in your sinful state, dead in trespasses and sins. But I know a man who knows your name. And when he calls you, he brings you out of the grave clothes, out of the depths of sin, out of the clutches of the enemy. And friend, he gives you a new life. He gives you a new body to walk, a new mind to think, a new voice to speak, and a testimony to tell the world, Oh, I used to be a dead man. There was no hope for me. But then Jesus came by. Somebody help me today. Jesus came by and He spoke my name and I ain't never been the same since. Thank God we have a Jesus who can resurrect dead things. Hey, I'm talking about dead churches and dead marriages and dead people, and dead dreams. Oh, he can let it die, but he can raise it up again. And it's better the second time than it was the first time. Because, oh, you see the power and the greatness and the goodness of God when it's raised back to life again. Oh, there's less fear. There's less doubting. Oh, I've got a testimony to share of what God's done. I used to be dead, but now I'm alive. <laughs> Praise His name. Dead churches, dead marriages, dead people. He raises them all back. Amen. Remember old Clayton King? Up there in the Himalayan mountains. Prayed that prayer. For God to raise that baby back to life and to preserve the life of that mother. Here's what happened. The first baby was in breech position. And the doctor had to break its hip. 
But that allowed the other baby to be born. Which in fact was stillborn. There was no pulse, no heartbeat, no breath. Clayton King said this, In those tense moments we were all praying like we never had before. Jesus, you are the resurrection and life. Help us. As we were praying, the entire village watched and there was an eerie silence in that dirty little room until it was broken by the sweetest sound we've ever heard. A stillborn baby coughed and began to squeal and cry. He said this in his book, God raised that baby from the dead and it was a miracle. The entire village saw it. God had proven His power. The doctor patiently worked to splint the broken leg with popsicle sticks and duct tape. And four hours later, the second baby was born, entering the world bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, and screaming bloody murder. He said, if you could have been there, it would have changed your life as much as it did mine. And so we could ask ourselves the same question that Jesus asked Martha, Do you believe this? What about it, friend? Are you dead in trespasses and sins today? Do you need Christ to give you a new life and a new heart? Our musicians are coming. And you can respond to this message if you need to be saved today. If you've got a request or a burden or a disappointment like I was preaching about and you don't see God's timing and you need encouragement today to pray, our altar will be open. Maybe you want to come and join the church. Maybe you want to be baptized. Maybe you've got something weighing heavily on you and you just need to come and leave the burden. At the altar you can do that.